All right, we are in uh, part six of this series called Conflicted, where we have been focusing on conflict, how we deal with it, something that we all deal with in our life, whether it's uh, conflict with family and friends, conflict with people we disagree with, conflict with people we work with or serve with that, you know, use those passive aggressive things in our life to really push our buttons, or, or maybe it's even conflict with people that are out to get us, to hurt us. We talked about that a few weeks ago, and last week we talked about conflict with God and how we deal. We looked at Jonah and this idea of how do we handle it when, when God challenges us to do something we don't want to do and we run from God. How do we move back into relationship with him? And I, I want to be honest with you, today, this message we're going to look at today, uh, had, I actually had it originally scheduled to speak three weeks ago, uh, but when I was prepping it, it just didn't feel right already. Uh, I don't, if you ever like bake much, I, I don't bake a lot, but I have made brownies and muffins from mix in the past. You know, you just add the egg, stir it up, and put it in there, and you, you get impatient. You go in, is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? And you're poking it. That's kind of the way this sermon felt uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, no, it's not ready yet. I, maybe I'm not ready to speak it yet. And, uh, and so it's just been brewing and going, and very honestly, it's been a hard message to write, and very different kind of message today, because normally, you know me, normally I, I will take a passage of scripture, dive into it, bring some principles out of it that we can kind of live out of and push forward. And today I'm going to actually be a little different. I'm going to share some scripture and a story from scripture, but I'm going to show you how it has actually played out in my life uh, and how, it, how I've tried to live this out. And so it won't be as many, here are three or four principles, it more be an example of what we do. And I think this will be meaningful for us because this kind of conflict we're talking about today is internal conflict. Internal conflict. How do we deal in our own lives when we struggle, right? With our, we have these conversations in our head. Our biggest arguments that we often have are with ourselves, right? Our doubts, our fears, our failures, our uncertainties. We just loop arguments in our head and struggle to get past them sometimes. And I don't know about you, but it is, I, maybe I, I'm, I'm speaking up here today, I'll find out like I'm the, the weird one, but I have conversations in my head all the time that I'm like, what is going, you know, like I just challenge my own thoughts. I challenge what I'm doing. And I, I just have these conflicts that are inside of me that it's not like good versus bad, evil versus right. It's not that I'm trying to talk myself into doing good versus doing bad. Sometimes I'm just having conflicts about doubts about myself, who I am, what I'm worthy of doing, failures that I've tried to overcome in the past. In high school, I was on a debate team, and we were really good. And you're like, that makes sense, right? You're kind of, you know, Patrick, you're speaking for a living now. You were on the debate team in high school. Of course you were. Like, but we were good. We were in our region like almost every year. But the unique thing about debate is when you walk into the room, you do not know until you get there whether you're going to be taking the positive side or the negative side. You have to be ready to do both. And it feels like sometimes in my mind, this is what we're doing. These internal conflicts feel like this. It's not that we're just trying to convince ourselves to do good instead of bad. No, we take a topic, we play both sides, we argue with ourselves, and we present the pros and cons, and we challenge our way of thinking, while at the same time we're affirming our previous thought patterns and ways of living. We're dealing with trying to grow, but trying to be the same, what's comfortable and what's not comfortable. In this kind of conflict, I think of it more illustratively as more like an arm wrestle. 
tournament, back and forth, waiting for something to give. And when it does and somebody finally wins, we're not even quite sure if the other side should have won. Maybe they should have won. And there are moments of deep struggle dealing with deep issues relating to how we view ourselves, others, and God. And too often, these moments of eternal conflict, internal conflict, we do alone. Alone. We don't invite anyone into it, and we leave God on the outside as well. And I know when I do that in my life, when I have internal conflict and I leave God out of it, it usually leads me to one of three places. And the first is this. It leads me to self-doubt. When I just have these conflicts in my mind and I don't want to invite anyone else or God into them, I start to doubt. I start to think less of myself. I doubt that I have any wisdom or skill, and I believe any decision I make will be the wrong one. And doubt starts to creep into every thought process of my life. If I'm having these internal conflicts and I don't invite God into them, then it can also lead to self-destruction. I start to make decisions with limited knowledge or simply with my own selfish nature leading the way, and it causes pain to myself and others. And I go into self-destructive behaviors. But then I think there's a third one that it can lead us to, and it's this self-delusion, is that we start to think that I do know everything. Everything that I need is in my head already. I have it all figured out. I've solved it, and basically what I've done is I've replaced God in my life with myself, and I've become a little delusional. And there's probably times you can look back in your own life and see when you've had internal conflicts related to maybe relationships or you know, just situations that you're going through, hardships that you're facing, and you've maybe come up to each one of these conclusions where you've doubted yourself or you've become destructive in your behavior or you just become delusional and think that every decision you make is the right one. The truth is every conversation we have with ourselves is a conversation we should be having with God as well. And the amazing thing about our God is that he is ready and willing to have these conversations with us. So today, let's, look at this, let's take this journey by looking at a man from the Old Testament who was, for 40 years, had been having conversations with himself about his past mistakes and failures. He was dealing with self-doubt and in the past embraced self-destructive behaviors, and his self-delusion had told him that he is now worthless, no good, and has contented himself to live out a life of exile. And the man we're talking about is the man named Moses. So here's the background. It's been about, when we find Moses here in Exodus chapter 3, it's been about 650 years since the call of Abraham, since God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, had been through multiple trials, and he eventually was named a prince of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. During that time, a great famine hit the land, and Joseph's family came to Egypt to look for food. And there they were re reunited with his brothers, and eventually the whole family of about 70 people at that point moved to Egypt. The nation of Israel was very small at that point. About 70 to 100 people moved to Egypt at that point for provision. Well, during that time in Egypt, two things happened. The nation of Israel grew, grew large, very large. And eventually, it says, a new Pharaoh started to view them not as an asset, but a threat and he began to enslave them. A majority of the 420 years that the Israelites spent in, spent in Egypt, they did so as enslaved people. Because Pharaoh viewed them as a threat, he began to implement policies to limit their size, and one of them was he was killing any of the firstborn boys that were born. 
He let the girls live and was basically trying to end the nation of Israel by causing them to have to marry into Egyptian culture and that their new sons would then be considered Egyptian. And it was during this time that we meet Moses. His mother gives birth to him. She hides him for three months and then she places him in a basket to float down the Nile to a place that she knows he will be found. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and then eventually raises him as her own child, a grandson of Pharaoh. Moses is aware of his Hebrew heritage, just as his adoptive mother is. Although he is raised in Pharaoh's palace, he sees the plight of his own people. And one day he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and takes matters into his own hands and he kills the Egyptian. His own people get mad at him because they know that they're going to take the blame for his killing. And eventually Pharaoh finds out what he did and ordered Moses to be killed. And he had probably been looking for a reason to do this for a long time. Moses flees and goes to a place called Midian, a place not even connected to the nation of Israel, a foreign land, and he hides in the desert. And then over the next 40 years, Moses finds a wife, begins to raise a family, and he gets into the family business. He was done, exiled. He had gone from orphan to prince, from ruler to murderer, living in with his Hebrew brothers and sisters to now a foreigner in a strange land. But that is when God decides to have the conversation with Moses that Moses has been having in his own head for the last 40 years. In Exodus 3 and 4, God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush and has a pretty intense conversation with him about a task that he wants Moses to accomplish, to go and free the nation of Israel from Egypt. But before he can send Moses on his way, he has to deal with all the pent-up issues that have been rolling around in Moses' mind for decades. I like to refer to this passage in Exodus 3 and 4 as the first therapy session in the Bible. It's when God came and sat down with Moses and said, we got some things to talk about. It's, uh, if anyone was in need of some mental health therapy, it was Moses. Think about this. He was sent down a river as a baby by his mother, only to be found by a princess who then sent him back to his mother to be raised, who then sent him back to Pharaoh's home as a young child, who then grew up into power and prestige in Egypt as he watched his own people being brutalized so they could, he could enjoy his station in life. And then in a moment of personal outrage and in hopes of showing his allegiance to his own people, he kills a man. His people reject him and Pharaoh turns on him and now he flees to Egypt as a hunted and hated man. Just a few issues, right? The man's got some issues that he's got to deal with, things to unpack. And in Exodus 3 and 4, we see a beautiful conversation between Moses and God. God comes to Moses and wants to set him free. But Moses throws every argument he can at God as why he must be left in his self-made prison cell. These were conversations Moses had been having with himself a long time, and God was ready to set him free. So I want us to see in Exodus 3 and 4 right quick just a, how God deals, first of all, with Moses' doubts about himself. When, Moses, when uh, God comes to Moses in the form of the, like I said, a burning bush, he calls me, tells him what he wants him to do. He tells him, I will, you know, you're going to go and empower you to set our people free. I've heard their cries for help. I'm sending a deliverer, and that deliverer is you. Now, we often pick up the story of Moses right there, right? And we think, Man, this mighty man of God is ready to charge back into Egypt and set his people free. But again, now we understand a little bit more. He had deep-seated issues about himself and his view of 
himself and his people and God and where he came from. And so in Exodus 3.11, Moses responds to God's command for him to go, and he says this. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He's basically saying, I'm going to go with you, and you're going to come back here safely. That's why you, you'll know. Don't, don't worry about it. It's like you know the, God's telling Moses the end of the story. Go, set them free, bring them back here, and I am with you. And when we hear about this, we, we immediately see that Moses has doubts about himself, right? Who am I? Who am I? You ever think that? You ever wonder that? Who am I to be doing what I'm doing? Who am I to speak truth in anybody else's life? Who am I? Who, who are you? It's the same as Moses. You're God's chosen. You're God's loved one. You're God's son and daughter. It's a beautiful thing to think about. And, and one of the ways that God combats self-doubt is with his overwhelming love and acceptance of us. He created us, formed us, shapes us, knows us better than anyone else, even ourselves. Who are you? You are God's chosen. But then God also deals with Moses' past destructiveness, right? He, there was a time Moses tried to deliver his people. He murdered an Egyptian. And maybe he was ready to start a revolution at that point, but it did not go as planned. He left as a man hated and exiled by both Egypt and Israel. And so as he's dealing with this past destructive in, in Exodus 4.1, we see then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say that the Lord did not appear to you. He's basically saying, I tried this once. I did this. They didn't listen to me. Why are they going to listen to me this time? And then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. In the next verses, we see God showing other miraculous ways that he is going to show himself through Moses. Not by Moses' action. So how does God deal with our past destructive or the destructive nature, self-destruction? By reminding us he is the true power in our life. Not only are you chosen by God, but God's power is available to you. His promises are available to you. God, Moses says, I tried and I failed miserably. And God's saying, try again with me. But the third thing we see here is how God deals with Moses' delusions about himself. That he can't work, he's, he's no good. Who am I? You know, he can't see down the road of a man who's going to, you know, part the Red Sea, who's going to lead a nation to a promised land. And here's what he says in verse 10 of chapter 4. And again, this is the same conversation Moses just keep having with the Lord. He says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses tries to get out of it again, going, I'm a little delusional, but I can't even speak. I couldn't be a good spokesman for you. And God reminds him in that moment, not only is his presence there and he's chosen, his power's available, but God will provide whatever you need in the moments of your challenge. I'll be your voice. I created your mouth. I created your tongue. I created all of this. I know. I'm not surprised when you tell me that. God's provision is available. And he says, I'm not 
I'm not worthy, right, is what he's saying. And God says, no, but my provision is more than you'll ever need. I remember first reading of this story of the burning bush in elementary school and thought how cool it would be for this to be able to talk to God like this, right? To walk outside, set a bush on fire, and have God appear. It never seemed to work. I tried it a couple times. But God doesn't need a burning bush to talk to us. The amazing thing about being a follower of our Lord is that we have been gifted with the Spirit of God to live within us, to dialogue within the midst of our internal conflict that we're having. However, it took me a long time to really experience this. Honestly, it wasn't until around my 40th birthday that the reality of inviting God into this internal conflict became a reality. And today I want to share with you one of those moments. Back in 2019, right before COVID, I began to write uh, or began the process of writing a book called Broken Peace. And I took some time off from teaching and spent some time putting on paper some events from my life where I found peace through my own brokenness. Basically times I have finally invited God into my deep internal conflicts and finally found peace on the other side. And while I am still working to finish this book, I wanted to share just a couple of chapters with you this morning that I think demonstrate a time in my life when I experienced the same kind of burning bush moment that Moses did, when God broke through and dealt with some deep issues of pain that I've been holding on to for years. So if you'll oblige me, I'm going to pretty much read a few pages here, and uh, this is a personal story from my life that starts back in first grade. Chapter one, David and I met the very first day of first grade. I remember marching from our classroom in Hickory Hills Elementary and making our way to lunch. I'm not sure what I expected. Up until that point, my lunchtime had been, consisted of my mom's sandwiches at home or a nice packed brown back lunch at preschool. Lunch had always been a nice, quiet time before recess and going outside to play. It was peaceful. As I walked into the lunchroom, I was greeted with anything but a peaceful environment. I felt like I was walking into a prison dining hall that I had seen on some TV show somewhere. It was loud. They were laughing, screaming. The sound of trays and cups Clicking and clacking filled the room. My brother Jay was three years older than me, and I knew he must be in that room somewhere, and I was searching frantically for his face, for any face that looked familiar, but they just kept marching us forward. I had met some of the other kids in my class that morning, but I didn't remember any of their names. As I looked at their faces, they seemed as mesmerized or terrified as I was. I stayed in line and followed the boy in front of me who was being ushered through the door to pick up our trays of food. There was no sign of a neatly cut peanut butter sandwich or a small serving of Cheetos with a Chips Ahoy cookie for dessert. The lady at the counter quickly slapped some form of sliced meat onto my tray, followed by a pile of stark white mashed potatoes and green peas that were swimming in their own juice. We took our trays and followed the line out the door back into the chaos. It seemed to me that things had gotten louder, that everyone in the lunchroom was looking at us, these new kids at the school. Then I heard a crash. And I looked around, and the boy that had been in front of me had dropped his tray while reaching into the refrigerator to grab his milk to go with his lunch. The cafeteria went silent. Every head turned his way, and then it happened. The room erupted with laughter. People started clapping, cheering, pointing. It was as if they had rehearsed this moment. I had one desire at this point, to move away as quickly as possible from this poor classmate who had undoubtedly ruined his elementary career from the very first day. I looked forward, I looked forward, having no desire to make the treacherous reach for the milk that my classmate had. 
I stepped around him, but unbeknownst to me, the juice from his green peas had been swimming in. It was now running all over the floor around us. And as I took my first step, my foot was snared by the trap of the green pea juice on the ground. I didn't just drop my tray. I slipped and began to fall. And as my backside found the floor, the cafeteria, my tray found the my tray of food found its way onto my shirt and shorts. The noise in the cafeteria went from a slight roar to the sound a crowd makes when the team scores a winning touchdown. I just sat there. My classmate, who was already down on the ground, next, next to me, desperately trying to recover from his own embarrass, embarrassment, leaned over to me and said, Thank you. My name is David. <laughs> David and I never forgot that day. David became my first friend at school. We ended up sitting together at lunch almost every day of elementary school. What was a tragedy on day one of first grade became a cherished memory as we left the school five years later and moved on to sixth grade. In middle school, our friendship continued to grow. By high school, David and I lived on the same street, and it seemed that our lives would always be connected in some way. As we journeyed through high school, we had other friends, at times girlfriends, and learned that we liked different things and had different interests. David played football. I preferred to hang out in the stands with the girls while the guys were on the field. He was smart and studious. I enjoyed making people laugh. He was Jewish. I was Christian. These differences didn't seem to separate us, but connect us. I couldn't imagine life without David. Something shifted in David our junior year, and to this day I still don't know what started the change. He slowly became more recluse and reserved. I'd call his house and his parents would tell me he didn't feel like talking or going out. At school, he would sit at our lunch table, listen to the jokes, but I could see he wasn't mentally there. Ask him many times if he was okay, if he needed anything, and I always got the same response. I'm fine, just tired. I have so much going on. He looked like someone that was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. David was a good-looking guy, straight-A student, leader of a football team, but yet he seemed like he was missing something. Then one day, David, David didn't come to school. It wasn't a big deal until the day stretched into a week. I tried to call to go by and visit. The only answer I got was that David wasn't feeling well. Finally, about 10 days after David's absence from school, his parents shared with me that David had been admitted to a facility that helped young people with mental disorders. I didn't know what to say or how to respond. In the mid-1980s, this wasn't a topic that people talked about regularly. We kept it quiet. There were hushed whispers around the school about what was going on with David. His girlfriend at the time was taking it pretty tough, but even she didn't really even know what to say. To be honest, I don't think any of us really knew the truth. About three weeks later, David came back to school, and he seemed to be back to his old self. He was laughing more, engaging with people more, going out, smiling and whispering with his girlfriend in the hallway. I was happy to have my friend back. But something wasn't quite right. David seemed to have these large mood swings that I had never noticed before. One day we were in class and the teacher was handing back our test and I remembered I received a grade of 88 on the test and I was happy. And then she handed David his test. He was sitting right in front of me and I could see that he had received a 98. And I smiled and I thought, that's David. But, when, but that's when he exploded. He couldn't fathom how he didn't make a 100. He began to accost the teacher and blame her for not grading the test correctly. And before she could respond to his blame, he turned it on to himself and he verbally berated his stupidity and laziness for not being perfect. It was a tense moment that we all kind of laughed off, even the teacher, but I could see real pain and anguish in David's eyes. To be honest, I was concerned for my friend, but I was also busy with my own life. 
Being around David became more difficult. It was emotionally straining and draining, and I felt like I was always trying to cheer him up and calm him down. Over the next few months, David would spend some days or weekends back in the treatment center, but overall, he just went on with life. We never really talked about what was going on with him, and our conversations became more surface level and less personal. And I came to the conclusion that he was just, this was just the new David, and there was nothing I could do about it. I regret that decision. April of that year was our prom. The day was filled with girls getting their hair and makeup done and guys trying to look grown up in their rented tuxedos. We had rented limos, bought flowers, and made reservations at fancy downtown restaurants. Eventually, we all ended up at the hotel where that was hosting the actual prom. We danced, laughed, took pictures, and made plans for where we were heading for the after parties. I remember that I saw David at prom, but don't recall spending much time with him there. He had decided not to join our group for dinner and pre-prom festivities and instead had a private dinner with his girlfriend. All in all, it had been a fun night full of great memories. My date and I decided it was time to leave and head toward one of the after parties. We walked out of the hotel lobby toward our waiting car and David was already outside with his girlfriend and it wasn't going well. I don't know what the argument was about. I don't know what started it. However, I can tell you that David was having one of those massive mood swings and was incredibly angry. His girlfriend had decided she was done for the evening. She didn't want to be with him anymore right now. I don't know if she technically broke up with him, but it certainly seemed like it to David at that time. She left and I was standing there with David. I asked my date to head toward the car and I would meet her there momentarily. I attempted to calm David down. I told him everything would be all right. Just give her some time and some space. David stared back at me with wide open bloodshot eyes. I don't recall ever seeing him like that. He was furious at his girlfriend, and then he became furious at himself for letting things get to this point. He went back and forth between being angry with her and disappointed in himself, and he finally landed on himself as the target of his rage. I'm such an idiot, such a failure. I can't do anything right anymore. I destroy everything around me. David was more talking to himself than to me at that point. I don't remember what I said back to him at that point. I'm sure it was a simple answer that didn't connect with the severity of his feelings at that moment. In all honesty, I was worrying more about my date waiting on me in the car than I was about David at that moment. And I remember thinking, here we go again. Can't we just have one night of fun together without all this drama? We were standing face to face, and I remember all of a sudden, David's face and body relaxed. His head dropped and his eyes closed. He slowly shook his head back and forth and looked up at me and calmly said, Patrick, I'm tired. I can't take it anymore. I just want it to end. I want to die. At that moment, I felt like I was talking to my old friend for the first time in a very long time. <clears throat> Our friends were now leaving the prom and everyone was heading to the next party. The night was immediately filled with laughter. Couples were walking arm in arm. Car engines were starting and people were yelling across the parking lot at each other. I looked over my shoulder and saw my date patiently waiting on me at their car. My mind and soul were torn in that moment. I wanted to be with David and help him, but I wanted to be with my other friends and have fun as well. I looked back at David. He, he hadn't moved. His eyes were now downcast again. I reached up and put my hand on his shoulder and gave him a gentle squeeze. Then I spoke these words that I've regretted for the rest of my life. David, everything will be all right. Let's talk about it tomorrow. And I turned and headed toward the waiting car. There was no tomorrow for David. 
Two separate narratives played out that night. One was filled with laughter, joy, friendship, and frivolity. Another, I imagine, was filled with pain, loneliness, fear, and despair. David took his life that night. When I found out the tragic news early the next morning, it took years for me to learn many of the details of that night, details that I don't want to share here out of respect for his memory, but details that haunt me to this day. Part of me died that day. My friend was gone forever. Thousands of questions poured into my mind. Over the next few days, as I tried to process this, I talked with my parents, my brother, my friends, my pastor, even David's parents. But I didn't talk to God. I was too angry, but I was also too scared. No one else knew about the conversation that I'd had with David. No one except for God. And while I wanted to ask him where he was that night, I knew he was probably going to ask me the same hard question. Why did you leave your friend? So I didn't talk to God. Instead, I just tried to be a better Christian and hope that the pain and shame would go away. They didn't. It took me just over 24 years to finally talk to God about that night. Chapter 2. What if? This chapter, in just a minute, is going to go to a dialogue between me and God, just so you understand. A few months after my actual 40th birthday, my wife Katie threw me a surprise birthday party. She said the only way that she could actually surprise me was by doing the party after my birthday. She invited family and friends from many different uh, seasons of my life. There were people there from churches I had pastored, college roommates, people from out of state, and even high school friends. I remember looking around the room and soaking in the amazing gift that Katie had given me. As the party was drawing to an end, I, recall, I would recall thinking that I wish one other person could have been there, David. That evening after the party, God and I finally had the conversation about what happened on the night nearly 24 years ago. This is written like a script. Patrick's lying in bed on his back, head on his pillow, eyes open. Katie's sleeping soundly beside him. The house is quiet. A bit of moonlight's coming through the open windows. The clock shows 12.15 a.m. God, are you there? Hello, I'm here. Tonight was nice. It was great seeing everyone, lots of memories. I thought so too, God says. Do you remember David? I say, yes, of course. I miss him. I wish he had been there. I know you miss him. Do you want to talk about him? What's to talk about? He's not here anymore. He's gone. I just wish he could have been there. That's all. I wish things would have turned out differently for him. God says, me too. Patrick sits up in the bed quickly. Katie stirs and goes back to sleep. Patrick says, you too? If someone could have done something about it, you could have. Like what? What could I have done? I lean forward, gently closing my eyes and take a deep breath. And I say, I'm tired. I'm going to sleep. This is pointless. God says, you're tired. You're just avoiding talking about this again. I can't do this lying in bed. God says, wherever is good for you, it's good for me. Slip out of the bed and head toward the backyard and sit on a bench. I say, you know, now that I think about it, you're wrong. I have talked about it. How many times have I shared this story? I've used this story to try to help other people, to keep them from doing the same thing he did. I haven't forgotten him. Well, you, you have talked about it a lot, about it. But you haven't talked about that night. You never asked me the questions that you wanted to ask. You never given me a chance to answer what is really down deep, the thing that you kept a wall, that has kept a wall between us for years. Well, I, I don't know. It just hurt. Then, well... 
then it just, I had to get over it, get on with life. It was something that happened to me when I was 16. He had a lot of other friends that were feeling the same way as I was. I mean, my God, his parents, the pain. I can't imagine what they went through. Everybody has something in their past, some kind of pain. Nobody has an answer to these questions. I ask, I got the normal answers, that you work in mysterious ways, that you'll work everything out to some point good down in the future. We've always explained why you let, we can't always explain why you let things happen. We just have to trust you. Well, do you believe those answers? I, I don't know. I guess I'm supposed to. You tell me. I mean, they sound great. They're easy to say, easy to hear. I've told people the same things. What else is there? God says the truth. What is the truth? The truth, God says, the truth is watching your friend deal with mental illness, depression, anxiety, and not knowing what to do about it is confusing and painful. The truth is death and the death of someone you loved and cared for will mark you for the rest of your life. The scars don't go away. They'll never be the same. The truth is feeling like you could have done something or said something to keep him from killing himself and you didn't. That's a heavy burden that's not easy to put down. That's the truth. You've been living in that truth for a long time now. Well, I don't like that truth. You don't have to. It's still the truth. Then, then why does everyone give the easy, shallow answers that make you feel like you have to get over this? Just get back to normal. Just act like it never happened. Because they're scared, just like you are scared. Scared? Scared of what? I'm not scared. Maybe confused, pissed off a little bit, but I'm not scared. Then go ahead and ask. Ask what? What do you want me to ask? Ask me the question you've been wanting ever since that night. This conversation is about the pain you felt from David dying. That's hard, no doubt about it. You've dealt with a lot of other deaths in your life. You said yourself, people are impacted by death all the time. It's not easy. It hurts. But your question is something different, something deeper, something your attempt at Christianity hasn't come close to answering. Okay, maybe I'm a little scared. I don't know that I'm scared to ask it, but I'm scared of your answer. Well, go ahead. What's, worse, what's the worst thing that could happen? The worst? My deepest fears are confirmed. The, the weight gets heavier. It's pretty heavy already. You've been carrying it by yourself a long time. Let me in. Okay, it's a simple question. What if I would have stayed with David that night? Could I have kept all this from happening? Could I have calmed him down? Could I have kept him from going home? Kept him from grabbing a shotgun and shooting himself? Could I have stopped all the pain that he felt? That his parents felt? That others felt? That I felt? Would we still be friends? Would our kids have grown up playing together like we did? Would we had a lifetime of memories together? Would he have been at this party tonight? God says, I don't know. <laughs> I said, that's a pretty weak answer for a God of the universe who's supposed to know everything. How can you say you don't know? What would have happened? I don't know because it didn't happen that way. There's not some alternate timeline out there where you made a different choice and everything turned out okay. You've been playing out these two stories in your mind ever since that night, thinking they're both reality and wishing that you could somehow jump over to the other ending. If you had stayed with David that night, would things have happened differently? Of course, your choices have consequences. This is one of the biggest gifts I've ever given to humanity. That answer is scarier than I thought. So you're saying it was a mistake. I could have, I should have stayed. My choice cost David his life. It's my fault. 
Is that what I said? I just said your choice has consequence. That, is, that it was a choice. Then why do I feel so guilty? Because you think you're the only one who had a choice. Lots of people made choices that night. Ultimately, David made a choice, a choice to end his life, a choice I wish he wouldn't have made. Then why didn't you stop him? Why didn't you force me to make a different choice to stay? God said, if I would have taken away his choice or taken away your choice, I would have taken away the very thing I created you to be. You're my children, the object of my deepest love. There's nothing in this world more precious to me than you, than David, than all of my children. True love is not forcing yourself on someone or forcing them to love you. Love isn't placing someone in a cage and controlling their every thought and action. It isn't exercising power and authority over them just because you can and even when you know what is best for them. But couldn't you have done it just this once? If I would have taken your choice away, I would have had to take my love away from you as well. And that's the one thing I can't do. I can't stop loving you. Love without choice isn't love. It is controlling, manipulative, selfish, and cruel. It's evil, and I am good. Love is freedom and setting others free. It is patient. It walks with someone, not ahead of someone. Love gives life. I am life. So then this is life, constantly hoping that I can make the right choice, choose the right path, find you in your pot of gold at the end of some cosmic maze. God says life is made up of choices. Some choices have very clear consequences and yet still choose the more difficult path. Some choices aren't as clear. The consequences seem hidden or unknown. So you do your best, but this life isn't a multiple choice test where there is one right answer, one correct path that leads to me and to the hope that I have to offer. I'm not hiding at the end of a maze hoping that you might finally make the right choice and complete it one day. I am the path. I am the way that leads you through the trials of life, the temptations of sin, the pain of loss, the heights of love, and the depths of peace. I get it, but I don't like it. Sometimes I think I'd rather be in the cage. It wouldn't be as painful. I wouldn't feel as guilty. My choices wouldn't hurt other people. But even being in the cage has its consequences. What kind of husband would you be in the cage? What kind of father, friend, pastor, teacher? The cage is death. David chose the cage. I'm not in the cage. Your choices impact life, your life the most. Then those closest to you and so on and so on. Your life is going to be filled with the waves of your own choices and the wake of the choices by those around you. You can't avoid it. But you also can't get through this life on your own. You weren't designed that way. Without an anchor, without a true north, you will get lost, tossed around like a fishing boat in the middle of a raging storm. And that's where you've been. You're right. My soul has felt adrift and restless ever since that night, ever since I made a choice that I wish I didn't make, a choice that I've always thought cost my friend his life. I've always thought you were ashamed of me and my choice as well. I've imagined you looking at me that night with disappointment and contempt for not making a better decision, for not loving my friend the way that I was supposed to. God says, no, I'll be your anchor. I will be your true north. I give knowledge, direction, and wisdom. I'll provide support, hope, and healing in times of difficulty. 
I'll be your navigator and captain through the storms and swells of this life, but I won't be your captor. I won't make you my slave or my servant. I'll be your savior, but it's your choice. Come out of the cage and walk in hope. There is hope in knowing that your choices cannot thwart my plans for your life. The hope that my ways are higher than your ways and my dreams for you that are more than you can ever imagine. Hope. Hope. That's what I've been missing. All I've seen is the pain and despair of my brokenness and the brokenness of others. I'm ready to come out of the cage and live in hope again. Will you help me? I have never left you or forsaken you. I have waited and will continue to wait for you. I have wooed you and lavished my love upon you in the hope that you would let go of this heavy yoke of guilt and shame and step into freedom. So yes, yes, I will help you. I will walk with you every day, every hour, every moment as you embrace the beautiful freedom of hope. Now go get some rest. Go back to bed. Go back to your wife and children and leave this burden here and never pick it up again. I love you. Rest in the freedom of your new hope. When God came to Moses, before he could send them to help set the people free of Israel from Egypt, God had to set Moses free from his internal conflicts and his self-made prisons. Moses had doubts about himself. He had developed destructive tendencies. He was delusional about his current and future ability to do good. And we often find ourselves in these same thought patterns, the same internal conflicts that create the prison of self-doubt and destruction and delusion in our life. But we have access to the same God who set Moses free. From those bounds, he can set us free as well. The key idea I want you to hold on to today is this. Before we can help others experience the freedom of God, we must first experience it ourselves. Come out of that cage. The question is this, what cage of internal conflict are you not allowing God to step into and bring freedom? There isn't a cage too strong that God cannot break you free from it. No cage too strong, too locked that God cannot break you out of. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? This example as well as other examples in my life and in your life are these cages that we put ourselves in an inter- internal conflict that we separate ourselves from our Savior. Would you consider for a moment today where it is that you've caged yourself? What pain has been too great to talk to God about? What hurt? What hurt has not been able to heal because you've not invited God into the conversation? What pain is still so prevalent in your life because you've not asked for the hope of healing to come in? Whatever cage we're in this morning, we we need freedom desperately. And that freedom comes through simply inviting God into the conversation. Stop having these conversations by ourselves, about ourselves, and with no one else and without God. 
So can we take a moment this morning and just invite God into our pain? These conflicts of our life that we like to keep separate and hidden in shame and guilt? God, you are faithful. God, you are freedom. God, there is nothing, no pain, no hurt, no shame, no guilt, that you do not have the key to unlock and free us from the bonds of. As a matter of fact, you already have. The cage is open. There's no work left to be done. We just have to reach out and draw you into it. You're already there. God, help us to talk to you. These moments of deep conflict in our soul. It's not to hide, run, put ourselves in a cage and act like we're abandoned because we are not. Your love finds us, seeks us out, and it frees us to walk in victory.